You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. The late minister, Robert Farrar Capone, said the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure, desolate scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The Bible is a message of God's grace from beginning to end, and the Epistle of Romans is one of those letters that makes the gospel of grace explicitly clear. Drinking 200-proof alcohol would wreck you and could even kill you, Drinking from the fountain of grace we read about in Romans will do the same thing. The 200-proof, pure, free, unfiltered gospel of grace that takes you right where you are will put our life of sin and rebellion to death while bringing forth a new man, unbound, unchained, to live a truly free and transformed life under a perfect king. Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. He said that every Christian should not only know it word for word, by heart, but also that they should occupy themselves with it every day as the bread of the soul. John Calvin stated about Romans, if we understand this epistle, we have a passage open to us to the understanding of the whole of scripture. Taste and experience the power of God for salvation for all who believe, the 200 proof strength of the gospel in Romans. Good morning. If you guys would, go ahead and open up to Romans, and we're going to continue in our series there this morning. The main point that I want you guys to remember and walk away with is this, is that we need a dual renewal. And so we need a renewal of mind, but we also need a renewal of heart. And only the gospel provides a renewal of heart and mind. It provides a spiritual cleansing from the inside out, but it also renews our minds. And so we need a dual renewal, and we need that in today's society. Let me say this up front. This is gonna be a heavy text. We're preaching through Romans 1, which covers some sensitive subjects, but I also wanna say this. In no way do I ever wanna be apologetic for God's word, because there is nothing more loving than God's explicit word. And so it is my task to preach it and preach it faithfully. On the here's end, here's what I would ask, is to challenge maybe what you bring to the text and sometimes what we want is we want to support our lifestyles with God's word and so instead of letting God's word bring to bear on our lifestyles we'll say here's my lifestyle I really want it and so let me see if I can twist God's word and get it around the lifestyle that I want and so my plea for you guys this morning would be to hear and to listen and to receive and remember that do I want to be the God of my life or do I trust that there is a God who is a God of my life? If, if, if you're here and you're investigating, I want this to be a safe place for you to come in and to investigate the claims of Christianity, to understand what the gospel is and what the message is that Christians believe, preach, and teach day in and day out. And so if this is your first time coming in this morning, keep coming back because we're not just pulling passages out of the Bible. We want to preach through the Bible and through the whole counsel of God's word. Why? Because by doing that, we're able to preach difficult subject matter like today. We're not able to avoid it through doing topical series. I'm not saying it's always wrong to preach a topical sermon. I think there's a time and place. But primarily, we need to preach and teach the whole counsel of God's word 
and let it speak to all different situations of life. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. So with that, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We recognize, God, and I recognize that I always want to justify the life, to justify the lifestyle that I want to live. I pray that your word comes to bear on all of us this morning and you remind us that you are God, that you are good, that you are faithful, that you are holy, and that you are just. I pray where we're living a life in rebellion against you, Father, that you would uh, make our spirit sensitive this morning. Where our hearts have grown hardened, where they become blackened, where our conscience is seared, Father, this morning make us sensitive by your spirit. Show us both that Jesus quenches and satisfies our greatest longing and Jesus is the only way and truth. It's not up to us. It's not up to our lifestyles. It's not up to our performance. It's not up to the way that we live. Father, we have fallen short in every way. And so we praise you for sending your son to rescue us and live the life that we could not live. Melt our hearts by your love and grace and gospel this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We need dual renewal. That's going to be our main point this morning. And here's what I want to say. Sometimes we can be so caught up with logic that we miss people's hearts. And this is something that happened in the first century as well, because there was three philosophical kind of groups and schools and and ways of thinking. There was the Platonists that were driven by Plato. There were the Stoics driven by three different philosophers. And then there were the Epicureans driven by a guy named Epicurus. Here's why that is important. The Epicureans believed that all of life was meant to be lived by getting rid of anything that would cause discomfort. They were really driven by feelings. In fact, they developed counseling techniques to help us get rid of anything that causes discomfort in life. As Westerners, we don't like discomfort. The Stoics believed that we could only see and understand all of life if we used our rational reasoning. And so in some ways, and I know this might be too simplistic, but let me say this. The Stoics and the Platonists were very left-minded people, believing life is all about rationale and logic, and we shouldn't trust our impulses or emotions. The Epicureans believed that life was meant to be lived listening to our emotions and letting those regulate life. What I'm saying this morning is we both need to, or we need to understand both and, that our logic and our reasoning and our emotions have been impacted by what Christians call the fall of humanity, sin. And when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, We have a biblical understanding of what's wrong with the world. The world can say, we're trying to make sense of what's wrong with the world. Here's what's wrong with humanity. But what we're able to see in Genesis 3 is that actually sin is what's wrong with the world. And sin impacts our emotions and it impacts our logic and reasoning. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning. And why is that important? Because even in parenting, you you, you guys have done this, I'm sure, because I've done this. If you have young ones, you try to parent them with logic and you completely miss them, right? I did this yesterday. I was talking with my son and I was explaining something to him. And I honestly, I thought I was nailing it. Like, this is good. And Joey, my oldest, says from the other room, she's like, you're losing him, dad. And I was like, in, in my mind, I was like, A to B to C, like he's with me. And he was lost. Why? Because I was appealing to his logic, tr- trying to make a rational argument, and all the while, I was missing his heart, completely missing his heart. This is also important because I'll do this with my wife. Is sometimes we get into arguments and in those arguments, and I'm not saying my wife is not rational. Please do not hear that. That is not what I'm saying. 
please, 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 please. But we'll get in these arguments, and what she's wanting me to do is to listen to her heart. And what I'm trying to do is apply some sort of reason and logic for stuff and missing it. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, we took my oldest daughter to Sisters, Oregon to celebrate her 10th birthday. She wanted to go horseback riding. So we as a family, we got dressed up in our cowboy getup. <clears throat> I had my hat on, my boots. I looked the part. In fact, so much looked the part that while we were walking around, Sisters, this gentleman approaches me. And, and, and he screams out. He says, Ryan. I say, Brian? And he goes, R-Y-A-N, Ryan, and walks up right in my face and shakes my hand and goes, you looking for a ranch hand? And I've never been more flattered in in my life. I was was blown away. I I did not have the courage to tell him the only thing we ranch are three guinea pigs and one bunny, but I loved it. And meanwhile, I looked over and my daughter was visibly shaken. And, and I was like, what? like, what's wrong? That was awesome. And she was shaken because this guy approached me so fast, got close to me, and then was in my face. And I explained to her, I was like, hey, dad had this situation under control. This is it. And like, that was missing her completely. There was something happening on a heart level to where she was shaken. And so I was trying to apply logic to her instead of just dealing with her heart, approaching her heart, being tender with it to say, hey, I can understand how that was a shaky experience. Let's address that. Today, my hope is this, is that we can look at both the rational, logical side of our minds, see how they're impacted by the fall and our heart, and bring both those things together to see how the gospel speaks to both our logic, our rationale, how it renews our minds, but also how it renews our hearts as well. But we have to understand that our minds have been impacted by the fall. We have to understand that our feelings and emotions have been impacted by the fall. And, and as we pick up today, leaving off where Brad preached last week, what we will see is that Paul lays out his thesis for the gospel in verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1. But then he takes this unique step forward in verse 18, and he says, for the wrath of God is revealed. So it's beautiful, 16 and 17. This is the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe. Paul lays that out. And then the next thing he might say, this gospel is for your own happiness. This gospel is to make you happy. What Paul does next is not that. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed. So Paul goes, here's the gospel and then wrath of God, which tells us something. The gospel is the very means that saves us and spares us from the wrath of God. We need to be saved, and this is not popular, from God and from God's wrath. And only the gospel does that, which means Paul's not saying it's just there to make you feel happy and good. He, he could have went into this whole section about God's unconditional love, but he lays out the gospel and says, because of the wrath of God, the wrath of God is a very real thing. Let's keep reading. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what do men do in their unrighteousness? They suppress truth. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man 
and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and, <clears throat> and worshiped and served the creature, the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. So the very first thing that we need to see is that we have fallen minds, so much so that God's wrath is being revealed. We need to see this. Many times people have asked us this question as pastors. Hey, where's God's wrath at in the New Testament? We see it in the Old Testament. It, it seems like it's poured out. Where is God's wrath in the New Testament? Right here in verse 18, for God's wrath is being revealed. Right now, presently, God's wrath is being revealed in humanity. So here's an example of where we see it in the New Testament. God's wrath is being revealed. It's present. It's happening now. We ultimately see it on the cross where God pours out the fullness of his wrath on his son. But right here we see that it's, it's being poured out. How's it being poured out? Well, what God eventually does in his wrath is he gives men over to their idolatry. In essence, the worst thing God can do is give us over to the very thing that dehumanizes us, idolatry. And so we see in 18 that the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How do we suppress the truth? We have fallen minds. Paul even goes on to say, look, it's plain. Verse 19, because for the, or verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Here's the thing. Have you ever tried to argue with your friends that are atheists? And if you're here and you're an atheist, I'm, I'm honored you're here. And in no way do I want to patronize you or anything like that, but I hope the arguments we make today could be helpful for you to see that you're standing on a fickle worldview that is futile. And God's word says that. So have you argued with your friends about certain things, about the creation of the world or anything like that? And they go, hey, I think that's stupid. You're, what you're pre presenting to me in this evidence leads me to a completely different conclusion. Why? Because you're arguing with someone who the word of God says that they have suppressed God's truth. They don't want God and they don't want the truth of God. So they suppress the truth. It's not that they don't know it. It's that they love being their own gods and they don't want to have someone else rule over their life. So they suppress what is plain in all of creation to them so much. So think about this. There's arguments in philosophy called the teleological argument and the cosmological argument. First, big words, simple meanings. Teleological talks about the fine-tuning of the universe. If our axis tilt was off by just a fragment, the earth would not exist. If our gravitational pull was different, barely we would not exist. If our positioning from the sun was off a little bit, we would either freeze to death or burn up. If the, if the planets themselves were not placed where they were placed, we would be wiped out by meteorites. Why? Because Jupiter and Saturn exist as like a cosmic vacuum that pull big meteorites to them, absorbing them from destroying us. You present a fine-tuning argument and they go, yeah, nothing. What about this? Do you know that the stars, there's about 100 billion stars in the Milky Way, the galaxy we live in. The distance between those stars on average is 30 trillion miles. The average stars, two stars, you look up in the sky at night, you can't see all of them, but the average star distance between those two stars is 30 trillion miles. There's 100 billion stars in our galaxy and 100 billion galaxies. 
We know so much more than David did in Psalm 8 when he goes, whoa, look at the moon and the stars. What is man that you are even mindful of him? We have that kind of knowledge. Think about this. Hubble telescope, the telescope that orbited around the earth, it could do that in 95 minutes. An airliner would take two days. How could it do it? Because it traveled at 17,000 miles per hour, which means it traveled at five miles per second. Do you realize it would take 200,000 plus years for it to travel the distance between one star and another star in our galaxy? And we look at that and go, yeah, man, pretty random. In fact, I had one of these arguments once with my friend who is an atheist, and he's a dear friend of mine. And I, and I was like, he goes, yeah, Big Bang. And I was like, okay, where did it come from? And he goes, aliens probably brought it here from another planet. I was like, okay, you got a big problem there. And you look at me and say, I'm irrational, but you just literally said that aliens probably brought all this here from another planet, and then boom, caused a bang. Why? Because our fallen nature wants to suppress truth. Look at what Stephen Hawking says. He's passed now, but probably one of the greatest physicists of our time says this, atheist. Because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. (laughs) John Lennox, who's a mathematician and bioethicist professor at Oxford University, says this about Stephen Hawking's statement. He says, when brilliant scientists say nonsense, it is still just nonsense. In other words, Where did the gravity come from? Gravity doesn't create itself. Nothing just comes out of nothing. Nothing just appears out of nothing. Whenever we look at the cosmological or the teleological argument, we can't just go, boom, everything just is here. And it developed in such a way for human life. But for the non-Christian, they go, all you're doing is sharing what's called a God of the gaps theory, philosophically. And that's that since you can't make sense of it, you put God there. Why? Because again, the thought of having someone else rule over our lives and call, call us to live life in, in, in a manner that is actually good because that's what God's law is. It is good, it is loving, it is kind. Sounds awful to people that want to be the masters of their own life. And so we can look at information like that and go, nothing, I see nothing. Or what about this? I'm gonna put two cups up here. I got some pens. I never do activities like this, so this is fun. This one over here is going to represent the atheist worldview. This one's going to represent the Christian worldview. This one says fizz, and this one says God. And let me explain why. I'm not, I'm not coming up with those. I want to read what Richard Dawkins says. Also, an atheist who's a biologist. He says, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation." In a universe of blind, that should be physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it. Nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. A. E. Hausman, the dark poet, says this. He says, for nature, heartless, witless, nature will neither care nor know. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. Carl Sagan, astronomer, also an atheist, says this, we are simply stardust. And so if the only thing that we are is protoplasm that is just fizzing or just stardust, then we have this here and we have God over here. Let me explain how our minds have been darkened. You look at truth. You guys can be the judge on which should go where. Where is their truth for fizz? If you drop Mentos in a diet soda, it is going to explode. That is a chemical reaction. Chemical reaction is not truth. Science cannot prove truth. Science can observe data, but it can't give us truth. 
Truth presupposes science. And so even professors like to tell you, we can't know, science is the only way that we can know truth. You can't bring that statement into the science lab and prove it to be true. It presupposes. So, science. Christians believe in science. We believe in science because we have a rational God who's given us science to logically observe. And we also have truth. Laws of logic. Atheists love to say, hey, we have the laws of logic. I need you to hear this. The laws of logic are not naturalistic. We cannot feel them. We cannot touch them. You can write them on a board and erase them, but you have not erased the concept of laws of logic. All you've done is erase the marker on the board. Yet, almost every atheist will appeal to laws of logic, but they're appealing to something that they can't give an account for because fizz does not fizz logic. Fizz just fizzes stuff, and we would know have no way of knowing whether it's logical or not. I'm sorry if this is heady, but I am going to bring it down to the heart level in a minute. So hang in there with me, okay? Laws of logic from a Christian worldview. Morality. Fizz can't tell us what is right or wrong. Anytime someone in the world says, hey, that's wrong, that's not right. They're appealing to a standard of something. Where does the standard come from of right and wrong? From a God who's given us a standard of right and wrong. Fizz can't tell us what's right and wrong. It is not wrong for you, according to the atheistic naturalist worldview, to park in a handicapped parking spot. In fact, I would cut the old person off when you pull in there. Why? Survival of the fittest. Let the old lady die. That sounds awful. I know. I, I don't believe that. No one believes that. Our secular world doesn't believe that. That's why we have handicapped parking spots, because we actually believe that we should honor elderly people and love and cherish and respect them. Why? Because we're creating the image of God who's told us that's how we should treat people. Math. Atheism can't account for math. It can't account for numbers. If you erase the number one, you have not erased oneness. Oneness is eternal. You don't just start with two. Mathematics itself can't even be accounted for. Numbers cannot be accounted for without God giving us those. We could go on, therapy and everything like this, and what you will slowly start to see is though this leads to absurdity that you can't be certain about anything, you can't know anything, you can't have any knowledge or any truth, they live out of this worldview because it would be absurd to live out of that one. But because we like to suppress the truth, we do it anyways. Well, what else? What about the heart? Look here in the text. It says, for although, starting in 21, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Jump down to verse 24 and it says, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. Lust there is an over-desire. They had an all-consuming over-desire for things, and God gave them up to that. So our hearts are impacted, our minds are impacted. Here's what I want us to see. <clears throat> the worst thing, again, that God could do is give us over to our idolatry. One theologian and pastor said that the human heart is a heart, uh, it's an idol factory heart. In other words, if we cut off one, then, then another one sprouts up in its place. What we also need to see is this, is people make this statement against God. They say, hey, how can God send people to an eternity in hell? It doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime. Here's the problem with that. Who says that you stop rebelling against God in hell for all eternity? God's wrath is poured out there for all eternity. It is still the presence of God's wrath without God's goodness. The worst thing God could do is give us over to our sin and our idolatry because idolatry is the very things that are the created things 
by God that we make into God things. So Paul's not talking about bad things. He's talking about very good things that we make God things. Let's take work, for instance. Is work a bad thing? I like when you guys answer rhetorical questions. That's awesome. Well, it's not. It's, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. God said work is good. How do we make work into an idol? When we sacrifice our families for it. When we say this is just a season, and once I get through this season, this all fits in, inside of our proper plan for what stability is going to look like. So we will sacrifice our families because we like stability and we like security. So what's the sin in that? Not work. It's the heart and it's our desire for stability and security. What else? Relationships. Relationships are a good thing, but we make them a God thing. In other words, we figure out that or what we come to this conclusion that we cannot exist if so-and-so is not in my life. I have taken my heart. I have taken my affections and my emotions, and I've wrapped them around this person, even my children. I wouldn't know how to live life, and I would crumble if this person did not exist. We make very good things of relationships and people into God things by placing them into the place of God and starting to worship them with our heart and with our affection. R.C. Sproul summarizes this whole section and he says, this whole section right here is all about worship in Romans 1. Tim Keller, another pastor and theologian, says this whole section is about idolatry and I would say it's about both. What idolatry is is when we worship the created things instead of the creator and wrap our heart and our affections around those type of things. We do this even with counseling and various things. We, we, we can become idolatrous about learning ourselves. You're consumed with the Enneagram. I'm, I'm all about my number and figuring out my number and how that relates to me, how it relates to other people. I go to my counseling, we talk about all my problems. We spend an hour talking about me and me and me and how I relate to this. And all those things can also just become idolatrous because it's just self-consumed about you, which we're already really good at doing. And so our idolatry is taking the very good things that God has given and giving our heart to them and saying, now, you're going to be my God. You're going to give me worth. You're going to give me purpose. You're going to give me meaning. And think about the pressure we put on things and people to be God when they were never created to be that. Boy, we can crush our spouses, our kids, our church families, relationships, our work, our careers by expecting them to be something they were never intended to be. And God says, my wrath is present by giving you over to those things. Why? Because soon what you will see is they are empty wells that run dry. What, it, what idolatry is, it's like drinking salt water. The more you drink, the more thirsty you get, and the more you need to consume and consume and consume and consume. In fact, that's what happened in Genesis 3. God gave them the greatest gift of his presence, and he gave them good gifts. And they looked at it and said, God, you're holding out on us. We want something more. And from then on, We've had this over lust and desire for more and more. Our hearts need more and more and more. We can't get enough. God's saying, it's because everything that I created in this world was never intended to satisfy you. I am. How do we see the fullness of this happen? Well, God says, you want what you want so much that you'll go against even my own natural created des uh, uh, design. Look here, 24. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Look here, 26. For this reason, again, says that God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Further, women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women 
and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, there's a part of me that would just love to read the text and let the text be. But culturally, there's so much said about this that I want to spend some time addressing it. First, I want to say this. What is the text saying? What is the text saying? What, what Paul is not arguing is that homosexuality is the most vile sin of all sins. What Paul is simply saying is that because we want to suppress the truth with our minds, that our hearts are given over to lustful passions, that what it eventually leads to is that we are so against God and the way God designed things and created things that we even want to go against God's natural design for creation. So much so that we'll say this. What's interesting is throughout human history, we've seen the brutish acts of men. Paul starts with lesbianism. He starts with females. And then he goes on to men. Paul is also, what the text is not saying, is to avoid people that are gay or that are lesbian. In some ways, I would argue that every human being is xenophobic, meaning that things that are strange to us, we kind of go like this to, because we don't know what to do with it. Jesus was a friend of all sinners, of all people. To somehow say that we're not going to let this sin or these people into our lives, but we'll let the drunken person or whatever else it is into our lives. I would graciously call that to repentance. Yes, it's a sin, but Paul is not saying it's the most vile sin and we should stiff arm and avoid these type of people. What else is the text not saying? It is not saying that your attraction is sinful. Being attracted to a man or being attracted to a woman is not sinful. Acting on those is what Paul's addressing as the sin. So same-sex attraction The text is not saying that's sinful. What we do with attraction, that is where it can become sinful. Okay, what is the text saying? The text is is explicitly saying that it is sinful. I met recently with an individual who is gay, and he asked me this question, is my lifestyle a sin? And I, I gave him my answer to that and said, the Bible explicitly teaches that anything outside of God's creation between man and woman outside of a covenant marriage is sin. But I said, let me ask you a question. Have I ever made you feel like you are repulsive to me or that I'm unapproachable or anything like that? Because I would want to hear that. And he says, by no means. He's like, that's why I'm here having this time with you. So Christians, we don't need to shy away from the truth of God's word. There is nothing more loving than the truth of God's word. Don't let culture tell you that in order to be more loving, you need to adapt to what culture tells you love is. That's not more loving. The most loving thing you can do is look someone in the eyes and tell them the truth. That's what love is. But we don't need to give one up. We don't need to give up grace for truth or truth for grace. We bring both of those together inside of our human relationships, lovingly engaging people with truth, not stiff-arming. What else is the text saying? It's saying that God gives them up to these desires. It does not say that God gives them these desires. That's important. Why? Because of our sinful fallen nature, we are bent towards sin. God is not giving us those desires. Our sinful nature provides those desires for us. What's the church's response? So what the text is not saying, what the text is saying, what should the church's response be? We need to remember, church family, that our fight is not against flesh and blood. Paul says that explicitly. Your fight is not primarily against the left or the right politically. 
Your fight is not against people that have different ideologies. Your fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against the fact that there's a spiritual darkness in the world trying to deceive people. We also need to realize that the church has been part of the problem because we have idolized marriage and relationships so much that where people go, I can't be satisfied in this life unless I have a spouse. That's just not true. Because any married person will tell you that their spouse doesn't holistically complete them in some way. Only Christ can do that. And so what we need to do is point people to Christ. What we also need to do is engage people in such a loving way that we are pulling them into our community so they can have the types of relationships that they need to have in order to live a life of celibacy. We can't expect people to stay distant relationally and be satisfied because we're relational human beings. We need to pull them in to relationships. Also, a lot of this, uh, if you've never read, if you've never read Strange New World by Carl Truman, brilliant thinker, please read it. It's not going to be an easy read, but it is well worth your read. He unpacks a lot of where, a lot of how we got to where we're at today. It's really good. And I like what he says here. He says, if the individual's inner identity is defined by sexual desire, then he or she must be allowed to act out of that desire in order to be an authentic person. If the original pristine individual is the truly authentic me, then not just institutions, but every other person stands in a naturally adversarial relationship to me. Everyone else is first and foremost a potential threat to my authenticity. A lot of this is coming from this individual mindset of, This is who I am. This is who I've got to be. Do you know Christianity provides something so much sweeter and greater? I know people who have gone from homosexual to heterosexual. It is not our job as Christians to convert people. We don't need to have people converted from uh, homosexuality to heterosexuality. We need people converted to Jesus Christ and the gospel. We don't need people to go from uh, our conservative values or be converted to our conservative values, we need people to know Jesus. The gospel takes us right where we are. It doesn't say clean up, fix yourself up, or anything like that. It takes us right where we are, but it also transforms all of our life and brings it under God's rule. But we need to know there's an enemy that's convincing people that this is what's true about them. Christianity provides an identity that's so much greater. We have an identity that is transcendent over sexuality. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, There's neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor Greek nor Scythian. There's all that are one, neither male nor female. You're in Christ. The thing that is is transcendent over everything else is your identity and relationship of being one with Christ. That'll never change. That will never change. We also need to recognize and realize there's an enemy who's going against God's created design. When God created Adam and Eve, he said, go forth and multiply, be fruitful. Look at what the world is putting forward. It's all going against God's created design. Abortion, against God's created design to multiply, why? Homosexuality, against God's created design to multiply, why? Transgenderism, pulling out people's organs to reproduce, going against God's created design. Design. Why? Because the enemy hates that men and women are created in the image of God. And the enemy will do anything that he can to destroy God's image from filling and radiating throughout this earth. We get to arrive with the message of the gospel. We get to arrive with the message of truth. And let me say this as, as, as a challenge. If you are never getting any sort of pushback 
to living out the Christian life? Is it possible, just possible, this is not a shame or guilt thing, is it possible that you're afraid, afraid to uphold the truth of God's word? Is it possible that maybe you've bought into live culture, this is a more loving and better route to go? Because we could expect to get some backlash, especially in Eugene, Oregon, for upholding the truth of God's word as, it turn, as, as we look at a subject matter like this. We also need to recognize this is not all that Paul mentions. As he goes on here, he gives a, an extensive list, not a full comprehensive list, but an extensive one. Read on as we start to wrap up today. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They were gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We need a dual renewal. If we, we can look at that list and say, guilty. In fact, I get in arguments with my wife and try to use logic to manipulate my wife. I have a supernatural gift to bring out a sense of anger inside of my wife that no one else has the power to do. <laughs> Why? Because I too am guilty of pretty much everything on this list. Because I too was once a rebel living against God and suppressing truth. Which is why not only I, but all of us need someone who offers a dual renewal, someone who comes in and can renew and restore our heart and mind so that when we look at this list, we don't want to live this way. There's a massive difference between practicing these things and wrestling against these things. What we need is we need someone who is truly human. What is it to be truly human? It's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then your neighbor is yourself. Only one person in all of human history has lived a truly human life. He didn't warp his heart around or wrap his heart around the created things. His heart was consumed with God and a love for God and a love for others. He was the only law-abiding citizen to ever walk this earth. He followed every one of God's good and holy commands, and he did it perfectly. What's mind-blowing is when he put the stars 30 trillion miles apart from each other into creation, what he also built was a hill, a mountain, a mountain that he knew that he would climb, not to be elevated as a king, but he would be crushed and hung on a cross. Jesus knew when he created the world that he would create that mountain that he would be hung on. Think about that. Jesus was lifted up and elevated to what? An idolater, an insolent, disobedient child who was a liar, slander, and gossip. Because he was those things? No. Because you and I are those things, and our sin deserves the punishment and wrath of a holy and just God. You can't be loving and turn a blind eye to injustice. God is loving, and so here's what he does. He upholds his righteousness and his love by punishing his son on the cross. You need to hear this. You have one of two choices. This is it. Message of Christianity. You either recognize that Christ absorbed all the wrath and punishment that you deserve on your behalf, or you live your life trying to obtain a standard of holiness, of righteousness on your own that you'll never be able to obtain. 
And so we look at the cross and we look at what Christ did there and what he accomplished is he was laying down a life of pure obedience to the father and saying, I lived the way that they weren't able to. Now I'm dying the death that they deserve to. And if you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you need to hear this. God is not disappointed in you. There is not an ounce or drip of wrath left for you. He doesn't have a little cup over here that when you mess up, he's like, oh, I saved a little bit. The fullness of his wrath was poured out on his son on the cross. We don't wear as Christians some sort of like wrath repellent from God because he's grossed out with us. Instead, 2,000 years ago, a human entered history who was fully God and fully human, and he absorbed that wrath as a one-time event in human history. There's no more wrath for those that are in Christ. But then he also made us an heir. He made us a child. And so what we have the fullness of, think about this, as vast as the universe is, it can be numbered. God's love for you cannot be. You have the fullness of his approval and his acceptance and his love. It says in in, uh, Romans 3 that Jesus became the propitiation for us. He absorbed the wrath for us. It says in Romans 5 that there was a old Adam, that we were all born into sin, but now there's a new Adam, Christ, and we are born into him. And then it says in Romans 12, be renewed in the restoration of your minds. It says in 1 Corinthians 6 that we have been washed, that we have been cleansed, that we have been sanctified, that we have been justified. Only Jesus Christ in the gospel can heal our minds and heal our hearts. And my goodness, I need that. I see the way I act. I see the way I treat people. I see the way that I miserably fall short. And every time I do, I get to point and say, that's why he came. And then I get to recognize, and now this is who I am, God's child. Church family, here's what I would say. Pray. Pray that we would engage our culture richly. Pray that we would not be intellectually lazy. Pray that we would not stiff-arm people. Pray that we would in, in, truly engage relationally those that God has placed in and around our lives. And let's hold up grace and truth. And praise God for the gospel renewal that is dual. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for your truth. I pray that we would live our lives submitted to it, thanking you, Jesus, for restoring humanity and taking what we deserve and giving us what we do not. Let us go to the table and celebrate. We pray in Jesus' name.